Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When disaster strikes, emergency responders and government agencies must act quickly. But large-scale events make it difficult to determine where resources should be allocated first. Technological Advances in Geographic Information Systems, or GIS, have helped improve disaster responses across the globe and have become an invaluable way to process data. Today, we're joined by Ryan Landclos, Director of Public Safety Solutions at Esri, who will share how GIS is being used to supplement a variety of natural and man-made disasters. Plus, we'll discuss other GIS applications that are used in our everyday lives, even though we may take them for granted. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, Dr. Shepard, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And as a, a Weather Geek fan, it's a, a pleasure to join you. I can't wait to have this conversation. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's always awesome to talk to folks at Esri because you are doing some amazing things with this geographic information uh, systems technology. And I'm a professor at the University of Georgia in the Department of Geography. So I'm very familiar with Esri and GIS systems. And so I can't wait to share that with our listeners. But are you a Weather Geek? And if you are, uh, how'd you become one? Or are you a GIS geek? Yeah, well, that's a great segue to this. So I'm a fellow geographer, right? So my background is in geography and I got into, you know, I guess taking a step back to my childhood of like why weather always fascinated me and where I am today was, I remember back as a kid, my family grew up in West Texas and I remember traveling before I really understood weather phenomenons and like the impact they can have on a community. I remember traveling out to my family's reunion and in the backyard, there was this hatch I was like, what is that hatch thing doing? Like, I thought it was like this great playground, right? And they're like, no, this is the tornado shelter. This is where we go in the event of severe weather. And I didn't quite make the connection, right? I was just thinking this was a great place to play as a kid that looked like a cool clubhouse. You know, flash forward to, you know, many years later in Joplin, Missouri, when I was working at the state of Missouri, I had the opportunity to support the local community after the Joplin tornado. So I got to experience kind of both sides of weather, right? In the sense of the awe and inspiration as a child and then, the dramatic impact it can have and devastating impact on a community, which led me to my career where I am today at Esri, which is really helping organizations, communities, cities prepare for disasters that are climate related, weather related more, more often than not. And so for me, being a geographer, looking at the science of geography as a way to understand the world around us, to connect the weather to the, the community, to understand how we prepare for what might be coming our direction when the forecast comes out or the event has just happened, is a tremendous opportunity for technology like geographic information systems or GIS. So it's great to be here as a weather geek as a child and now being able to use the science of geography and technology like GIS to help communities respond in the midst of these disasters. And I think I've been adopted into the geography community because actually my degrees are all in meteorology. But uh, when I left NASA, uh, I landed in the geography department at UGA because that's where our atmospheric sciences firm is, is situated. And so over the years, I have become a really a strong proponent of the discipline of geography because frankly, most people don't know what it is. They think it's still capitals and rivers and maps and the things they learned about in fourth grade. <laughs> and, you know, although I'm sure if they have a high school student, maybe they've taken a human geography class in high school, AP human geography or, you know, 
there's so many different tentacles of geography. So I always like to use whenever we have a geographer on, on I like to help to educate the, those listeners that it's not sort of what people think it is. It's a lot, and GIS and, and, and geographic systems and visualization, geovisualization, remote sensing are all huge parts of the discipline of geography. Let me, before we really dive into the discussion, let me give a little bit of um, Ryan's background. He's the director of public safety solutions at Esri. Uh, he served as Missouri's first state geographic information officer, GIO, and GIS advisor for the governor's Homeland Security Advisory Council. He has served as an innovation team and expert group member for the United Nations on various initiatives and um, was a director of state and local governments at the nonprofit National Alliance for Public Safety GIS Foundation. So clearly we are talking to someone that knows his GIS stuff. So before we kind of get into the details of GIS and storm damage assessment, walk us through some ways that GIS is impacting people's daily lives that they may not even be aware of. Well, I think you know, we all live somewhere, right, in our community. You could think about it as a geographer. You said it well earlier that it's this mini tentacle thing, but but ultimately it comes down to location, right? It's where we're based today. Like I live in the Houston Metroplex. So congratulations, Dr. Shepard, to the, the Atlanta Braves, Braves. Last night for the win. I uh, have right. to say well, that. As we're taping this, uh, it's the, the, the morning after the Braves just won the World Series. I'm based here in the Atlanta area and Ryan's in Houston. So we've been having a little fun with that. Yeah, unfortunately, fun for for Dr. Shepard, uh, not so much for for me, but uh, congratulations nonetheless on the side. But, you know, everyday life, like people rely on location. Think about how many of you use a rideshare app or how many people use something like uh, a a location tool to find a restaurant in a new city, right? That's all location-based, and it's the idea that where I'm at in relation to where a facility is, where I need to take transportation to, where I need to find food or service delivery, all intertwines together. That's a really simple example of everyday use of technology that's location-based that people probably don't even recognize as being a GIS-driven technology. You know, certainly moving into the, the science world and to where we're talking about today for disasters, you know, communities that we live in have to map everything from the parcels and the streets, right? The, the built environment around us that we all experience every day as we travel through our communities. But really is the foundation layers that we use to better understand that community, start asking intelligent questions about who lives where and how we should prepare the infrastructure and the homes and the the riverine areas that we have to protect and mitigate against. Like we need all of those layers coming together to really paint the picture that allows us to then start to plan better response uh, when something bad happens, like a flood or a fire or the storm surge coming in a coastal environment. So while many people may not be realizing the power of GIS in that aspect of the world, I guarantee you most of you use GIS every day when you open up your phone on your smartphone or tablet and you're asking questions to find lunch today after you get done with the podcast, for example. That, that's correct. And I, 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 I realize that we just launched into a discussion of GIS, but for, for the listener, we have a very wide, broad breadth of listeners yeah, you and I know what GIS systems are, and you just kind of alluded to sort of what they are when you talked about various layers. But give the 101 basic breakdown of what a GIS system is. Yeah, I think GIS is an equivalent to think of a smart map. I think everybody can relate to a map. You know, if you ever pull one off of your shelf in the old days, for those that even have atlases and remember what that was like on a road trip, potentially, where you were moving page to page. But imagine if you could actually touch that map and get a response back. So I could actually click on that exit coming up and I could see what's nearby or I could click on that segment of road and I could understand traffic patterns. 
that's what a GISS allows us to do is take maps that most people equate in their mind and can relate to and make those intelligent. Uh, so beyond that, GIS is a framework that we use in many different ways in walks of life. And whether you're a biologist and you're studying, you know, species distribution, or you're looking in weather and climate and forecasting and climate change, you know, coming out of COP26, this GIS technology is a framework that allows us to measure and visualize factors around us, whether that's tree distribution, you know, species distribution, roads that we talked about earlier, and start to analyze how they interact. So I can look for patterns and relationships between those things. Uh, I can start to ask questions of that data to help me understand where to go in designing any programs that I have for distribution of food resources, for example, or even in our case, resources in advance of a crisis or disaster. And I can iterate on that together. So I can use these maps in a collaborative way to bring people together, right? It provides not just the content that's on the map, but it provides context to all these decisions that we're asking questions of. So, you know, Dr. Shiver, if you and I were sitting in a new community together, we'd never been to like opening a map up and coming together on that allows us to start to have a common frame of reference to ask intelligent questions and start to see things in a new way. And we can do that together in a GIS and then allows us to then start to put plans and actions onto a map that put that context necessary around it. Ultimately, it's at the end of that is we're going to take action in some way. And GIS is a great tool in field mobility and mobile devices that allow people to start becoming sensors that feed data back into that you know, cycle that I just started back to measuring the world around us, visualizing, continuing the analysis world. That's GIS, right? That framework of carrying along from measuring the world to taking action is what GIS is all about. And I would say the crux of that story is all about understanding. It's how all of these factors come together to bring it back to the science of geography what better sense there is to start looking at the interrelations and patterns and relationships that allow us to make better decisions in life. Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking with Ryan Lankloss from uh, Esri about the use of GIS. And one area that has become a, a, an important area is in disaster management and disaster response. Now, as a meteorologist, clearly I see the world around me from the lens of hurricanes and floods and drought and so forth or other extreme events. And certainly within the context of climate change, uh, I think we're in a new normal of those. And so tell us about how this tool GIS is being used in natural disasters and response and sort of what, what, what Esri brings to the table in terms of that. You know, my, you mentioned my role here at Esri as director of public safety solutions. And part of that role, I get to lead a program here we call the Esri Disaster Response Program or Esri DRP uh, and that's a program that we started more than now, 27 years ago when the Northridge earthquake happens in Southern California, which is where our headquarters is as a company. Uh, it was a chance for those in the company who live nearby at the request of the local governments to, to mobilize, to bring their technology, bring their expertise and their, their knowledge of geography and geographic thinking to bear to help them respond and recover from that earthquake. And that's really what we look at as the starting point of this program, that today you know, supports crises and disasters worldwide. Uh, you know, by a sense of scale, you know, 2020 was by far our busiest year on record, obviously with the COVID pandemic underway. You know, our organization supported almost 6,000 entities around the world with access to GIS technology to help them map the pandemic, to understand the spread, you know, the, the surge that was happening in hospitals and resources that were required. Uh, and just a quick example, I think everybody will relate to as a starting point is, you know, think about the Johns Hopkins University dashboard that we've all seen. I, I call it like the situation room of the world, right? It's, to be honest, it's one of the first time even my family maybe started to understand what GIS does and what I do. Like, oh, that's what you do, you know, when we're sitting around the table together. Uh, 
so our organization helps people through that that tough moment in time. And that's a program that we do at no cost. It's just part of our, our giving back into the community. And when we do that, the majority, I'd say the, the dominant hazard type that we respond to are weather-related disasters. That would be the floods, the earth, you know, the fire, sorry, the uh, storm surge issues that we have and, and the like. And that team focuses on a couple of different patterns. It is helping people understand what that impact is to a community, like who's been impacted and what's been impacted so that they can understand the amount of resources that might be needed, moving resources back to a community, helping the community get past that immediacy of, of the disaster itself. And then it's also then helping them get good situation awareness. So as forecasters and meteorologists are continuing to you know, change the cone of uncertainty or the, the storm you know, surge is coming up or the, the flood models are showing that it's going down over time in the river, like we use that as inputs to help them change their planning assumptions. So how do they understand what's coming in the next 24 hours, the next 48 hours? So being able to connect this real-time science and data together into a map allows you know emergency managements of mine emerging managers in my world to really start to understand where they need to go next to try to get in front of what's coming at them. Uh, and then I would say the last big area where we help a lot in crises and disasters using the tool of GIS is in public information and collaboration. So think about uh, as a community for wherever you live, you know, me in the Houston area, I am very interested in what evacuation zone that I'm located in. So I know that when my evacuation zone goes active for hurricane season that I need to take action. But in the context of a map, now I can see exactly what's happening nearby. I know which zones are activated, when, when to start anticipating I need to be able to take action and not. So we do a lot of work around public information and just using maps as a way to communicate effectively to the general public uh, during these crises and disasters to not only understand what the impact is now, but when they need to take action and what they should do. Here's where you can find a shelter, the transportation or the evacuation route that you should take to avoid peril as you start to move out of that community. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Ryan Lankloss from Esri. I almost said from GIS because we're talking about GIS. Now, one of the things that I've always wondered about is someone that dabbles with GIS systems, not an expert at all. I mean, there are a lot of databases that come into the GIS systems in these layers and shape files and various things. Uh, you may have a road network or you may have a, a network of a, a rainfall data, a map of rainfall data. But that those databases get prepared before they come into the GIS system. So is that painstaking? Who does the data? I mean, are there standard formats? And tell us, walk us through that sort of the sort of the sausage making of the underlying guts. Of this. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, the sausage making of GIS. That's a good way to put it. You know, I think just like for those who are listening and maybe learning about GIS as a technology for the first time, you know, just like there are meteorologists that that forecast the weather and have a background and understanding the science of that. There are GS professionals, right, that train and understand the science of geography, that understand the technology of GIS. 
it really is at the core of it um, as a database, a, but a location-based database management system. So they are the ones that are literally thinking aerial photography, right? If you're thinking from scratch, if I were moving into a brand new part of the, the United States, there's never been any development there before. And I started building a community, you know, it literally would be folks that are working together using aerial photography to start to delineate. Here's the road network. Here's the parcel fabric that we're, you know, laying out our, our land records and our administration that we're going to manage this city with all the way to where we are today of mapping. This is where the floodplain exists. This is where the low-lying areas exist. So as you described it well in your, your question, these layers of information are individual data sets that start to get created. And it's not just the visual representation of that. They're intelligent, right? So I can click on that flood polygon, for example, and I can understand, you know, characteristics of that polygon. What's the classification of that? Or I can click on a parcel from my home and I can see what the valuation is and I can understand the square footage. So the attributes, if you think of it as uh, a really smart intelligence spreadsheet for those that are trying to equate this in their mind with a bunch of rows and columns, but we can expose that into a map. And so when I click on a feature, a point, uh, a line, a polygon on a map that represents the built environment, the world around us, it can tell me about that. And I can start to ask questions and I can make queries against that and say, find all the like parcels that have this similar characteristics, you know, single story homes that are at a certain elevation, for example, near a floodplain. And I can start to surface that specific part of that database up. So making the sausage, as you called it, is all about getting those layers of information created, maintained, and usable so that we can start to then expose them into those decision-making process and cycles to, to expose the right amounts of data for specific questions around preparedness or response. Now, you mentioned earlier, I mean, this, this uh, I guess, disaster response program is over 25 years old. In that time, I can think of some pretty significant weather-related disasters. Uh, talk to us about some that, that you've handled and dealt with uh, in that time period and what were some of the interesting things you learned? Yeah, absolutely. I think weather, I mentioned earlier that I think the predominant hazard that we get exposed to is the program activates at the request of, of individuals, right? Organizations working around the world that are experiencing that crisis or disaster. Uh, and so we, we work 24 hours a day, seven days a week emails that come in at all hours. And somebody says, I'm in the midst of this crisis. And you're right, over that history, we've had a lot of major events, you know, key milestones, for example, in the evolution of technology and science of geography, I would say. Um, some of those weather-related, some not. I think even, you know, in the United States, for those listening, certainly 9-11 is one of those key moments in time, just to reflect back where we are this point in time in 2021. You know, that was a a culminating point in the use of GIS and technology to recreate databases, to mobilize a community, you know, the mapping that was done to really help that response. Just one example that the DRP is able to support as a community uh, partner in that regard. But you're right, a lot of the instances, if I look back just in modern history and times, looking at Puerto Rico and Hurricane Maria as a tremendous example of a weather impact and a, a hurricane that was devastating for the, the island of Puerto Rico, but the, the rebuilding of that, the response to that, understanding you know, power outage locations and shelter needs and all that is a GIS uh, heavy, intensive exercise in many ways. And so the DRP was able to support through Puerto Rico and helping the communities themselves map and understand the impact and continues today as they go still recovery, right, you know, many years later. Certainly looking more recent, this in the last year alone, I mentioned COVID took over, but in the midst of that, we know the world didn't stop having weather-related disasters right on top of that. So, you know, more recently, even in this year, Hurricane Ida, looking along the, the Gulf Coast of the United States, 
what that event was a, a massive use of technology and GIS for search and rescue activities. So literally mobilizing the search and rescue teams that deploy into communities and literally going structure by structure, trying to make sure that people are safe and evacuated and out and doing recovery and, and the like, but using GIS to, to track their locations where they've been, but also to document what they've seen so that there's a system of record there behind that that we can use to point back. One example of how the, the disaster response program was able to help in the midst of that um, certainly out west, the wildfires that are occurring, right, from drought conditions and the, you know, being exacerbated with climate change out in the western part of the United States, that's a good example. You know, our colleagues at CAL FIRE use GIS technology to respond to these fires. They're doing it both on the forefront from a, from a weather science perspective, looking at, you know, prediction where fires may start. And if something were to start, what's the behavior of that fire? What can we expect that fire to do on the landscape based on, you know, the, the current conditions of the, the environment, of the weather, of all those factors that come together in that science that they do so well. Um, but also post-event, so using these tools to take mobile devices and send teams out to do the structural assessment. And that is such a critical component to be able to, to go structure by structure and model, you know, to, to collect the damage, to do photographic evidence of that. That's what, you know, turns on the recovery dollars for these communities. That's what they use to access funds uh, from the federal agencies and like that allow rebuilding and recovery to, to really take off. And I would just leave maybe one more example I think that's really interesting recently is certainly looking up on the East Coast and again related to climate and weather, the flooding that happened in New Jersey, uh, the New York area after the hurricane kind of moved through was a great example again of GIS being put to use. And I think for those that are listening in that area may have actually used GIS when they went in to put in their personal uh, damage assessment. So in the New Jersey at the, the state level launched this survey to say, if you've had damage to your home, if you've had flooding in your home, fill out this form and tell us about that so we can get you help uh, and get you into the system. But that was using GIS to capture, again, location, which helps us to build that database that we talked about earlier of data points that allows us to then to model and understand what impact really look like. You know, those are three quick examples more recently, I think that uh, were really strong use cases of GIS in many different ways. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Ryan Langlos. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I, even as we speak, I'm working with two colleagues in my department, Jerry Shannon and Steve Holloway, and we're looking at uh, NASA uh, MODIS and Landsat data and looking at urban heat islands and sort of trying to understand the relationships between how urban heat islands are distributed and who, who may be disproportionately exposed to heat in those cities, uh, you know, from various sort of you know, poverty, race, cultural and other perspectives. And GIS is a huge part of what we're doing. Um, and, and certainly some of the ESRI systems. Now, now, full disclosure, I mean, we're not a commercial for ESRI. So there are other GIS systems out there and other GIS approaches, but you are certainly one of the industry leaders and your disaster response program is rather unique. Uh, how is that DRP, uh, this, this disaster response, response program, how is that 
sort of evolved and changed from its start to where it is now? Are there new elements, new, uh, I guess to use that word again, tentacles of it that, that have emerged? Well, I would say, you know, certainly as technology has evolved over the years, you know, I mentioned that the long history, we've talked a little bit about that, the 25 years, you know, back when that first deployment happened, it was, you know, you can imagine everybody trying to unplug all their monitors and desktop computers and, you know, rolling printers down the hallway and carrying out the, the amount of effort that it took to deploy people onto a site, uh, you know, 25 years ago was much different than where we are today. You know, by scale and comparison, you know, the work that I mentioned on COVID-19 was, you know, 100% virtual. So the fact that we have the web today, the internet that we rely on for conversations in this pandemic world where we're connecting over video and chat is also the same technology that's powering what we call WebGIS. It is this way that we can use a browser to connect to each other and we can use the cloud to share and collaborate. Uh, and so now I can have a team of folks that are able to deploy in virtually around the world to stand next to somebody you know, literally in a in a virtual environment and help them start to build their map and understanding of the, the incident around them in a GIS, you know, that's a dramatic shift in where we were 25 years ago. Um, I would say, you know, underlying that, you know, some of the, the core needs that we've experienced haven't changed dramatically. I would say it's the technology that's changing. You know, the, I mentioned, you know, the three main areas where we provide support typically uh, in our response, which is this idea of understanding impacts so or analysis and asking questions of the data, the situation awareness or real-time view of what's happening and then communication with public information maps. You know, we've done a lot of after-action reports on our side. So we look at what we do. We look at what people are asking of us uh, to help them with. And we use that as a way to guide our development of technology and solutions for the market so that we are giving the right things back to the community to help them better prepare um, but I would say that, you know, when we look over that history, there was those three things, you know, there's a, a few sub bullets to those that we could talk about, but those three things have held really true. And so for those that are listening, if they are working in an, an entity and responsible for having the conversation about how do we prepare for what's coming in a, in a climate or weather related incident or really all hazards, I would say if you think about those three pillars and how GS works, you're going to be better off than you were before going in. So if you, for example, if I have a tool that allows me to take in the weather alert or the polygon that comes in for the forecast. And I can click on that and I can quickly retrieve back the who and what, you know, like you were just describing, Dr. Shepard of, tell me more about than just there's people there, but tell me about the characteristics of that community. So how many of them have access to transportation or may lack access to healthcare or access to uh, insurance, for example, or transportation networks, like those things factor into our decisions of how we apply resources. And I think doing that more equitably is, is where we're seeing the technology really take off. And it's not just let's blanket this community with you know the same amount of resources everywhere. We know that disproportionate impacts happen within communities. And so what a great tool to, to really understand that pattern and then to use that as a way to communicate around that. So I would say, you know, that's one piece of that puzzle that comes together. But what's changed, I would say, is the technology. What hasn't changed is some of these basic core needs of understanding, of communicating well and collaborating. I think the technology now in this virtual space just allows that to happen at a scale that we've never seen before. And I think COVID brought that to a lot of people's minds. Again, think about the work of, of Johns Hopkins, but think about in your local state or community, you probably had a dashboard that looked very similar. There was ability to drill and ask questions at a county or sub-county level. Well, that's all 
geospatial data or GIS, you know, information being put together into a context of a of a decision making tool like a dashboard. So yeah, those are the tremendous leaps in technology that I think we are so excited about uh, because it allows us to reach people where they are. It allows us to reach a broader audience that are not traditional GIS professionals, but are meteorologists and other scientists or planners in a city that need this geographic information to do their job and to make better decisions that hopefully changes the outcome. And and I would say as a professor who talks to hiring authorities all of the time when they call about students seeking jobs, particularly the National Weather Service, one of the first things they ask me these days is, uh, does that student, even though it's a meteorology student, do they have any exposure experience with GIS? And so if you're a young weather geek out there or a meteorology major or aspiring meteorologist, uh, I highly recommend uh, exposure to GIS, data science, data analytics. I, uh, this area of data science, generally geospatial data and so forth, is as much a part of the meteorology and climate landscape as the uh, weather models and satellite data and radar and so forth. And, you know, that's candidly how we've structured our program at the University of Georgia. Uh, that's why we have a nice relationship with the geography department, because you know, though we produce card-carrying meteorologists, uh, our, our students also, we want them exposed to GIS because we see the landscape and where it's headed. And, you know, as we start to draw to a close here, is there an area that Esri is looking to move into with this process or with your with your approach that you haven't currently? I mean, I know you've mentioned COVID. That was an, sort of an, an unexpected opportunity to, to apply some of your uh, DRP to disaster response program technology. But are, are there other areas that you're looking to move into or other sort of things that you're going to be putting on the table soon? Well, I think maybe we could, we started a little bit in the last conversation around this idea of what I would call resilience, right? It's how do we, we can't just keep in the same mode that we've been in globally of responding to what's in front of us and then waiting for the next thing to happen and responding again, right? That re respond, recover, repeat cycle that I think we all find ourselves in. And you, in your intro talked about the, you know, the increasing frequency of these, you know, catastrophic events, the the damage that they cause, like, we know that's only going to get worse with, with climate change. We've seen that. And I think where we we see tremendous opportunity is not only preparing organizations to better respond when the bad thing does happen, because those are going to happen, right? We know the world around us will continue. And unfortunately, on the track that we're on, we'll continue to some degree, uh, continue to worsen. But stepping back from that for a minute to the preparedness that goes into being able to respond effectively means better understanding at the community level. So, you know, I talk a lot about uh, for organizations and emergency managers that I speak to day in and day out is you know, this technology of GIS, the science of geography and the framework that we talked about earlier is a tremendous opportunity for them to leverage the power of maps and geography to understand that community. We started to talk about it in the last one around related to uh, social inequities that may exist in our community and really starting to ask more detailed questions than just who's there. But tell me about those people, the characteristics that are there. Uh, and it's not just show me the built environment that I have bridges or overpasses or, you know, aging infrastructure, but it's like, tell me more about that. Can it handle a, a rain flow rate that's going to exceed my expectations? You know, and my, my personal experience of being through Hurricane Harvey, like I never anticipated I would ever see an event that was 60 inches plus of rain, you know, over that period of time, but it happens, right? And we continue to see rainfall rates increasing in different areas. Look, just recently with Ida and others going up the East Coast, like we are going to continue to see it. So being able to ask questions as a planner and as an emergency manager that allows me to then look for those very specific 
areas where I can make a difference, right? Because funding is limited, resources are limited, people are limited. And so the more we can prioritize where we can have the greatest impact, the more we're going to change the future outcomes when that bad thing does happen. And so I think if we think of it in the context of, I need to better understand the world that I'm into. I need to then start designing strategies that that mitigate that potential risk I've just identified, or adapt to the risk that's you know starting to evolve around us because of climate change and the built environment and urbanization and population movements, and then communicate what I'm trying to do to the community to build local resilience. I think that's where we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us. It's not just let's get ready to respond when it happens, but let's back it up and let's try to figure out how we can change that response for that incident from turning into a disaster, right? I think you could always say that not every uh, hurricane and not every flood is a disaster. If we do good planning, if we prepare, if we help the community, truly the people that are going to be the ones impacted at the end of the day, better prepare or change their outcomes, then we're in a better place. I think that's where we have opportunity. Yeah, this is such a fascinating and timely discussion, given what we've seen. Where where can people find out more about Esri, about the Disaster Response Program, and about you on social media or the web? Yeah, I would say if you want to learn more about the Esri Disaster Response Program, just what we do, you'll see great examples of how the community is using these technologies of, of GIS to respond. You can simply go to esri.com slash disaster. That'll take you to the page. You can find it. If you're listening, you know, I would jot that down. If you work in an organization, you think you might need help in the future, you can certainly re- click request assistance. The team is standing by to help. So just let us know how we can help you. But if you're just a weather geek and you want to find how this cool technology is being put to use and see maps and applications from around the world, uh, responding to weather-related disasters, just check it out that there's a ton of good customer examples out there. Um, if you'd like to learn more about me, like I would love to see you, you can find me on Twitter at, at Ryan Langclaw. So you'll find that on the, the bio. Uh, you can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn as well. If you have questions, feel free to reach out. Otherwise, just visit Esri.com. If you are looking more broadly away from emergency management and disasters, you'll find how GIS is a technology and Esri support a number of different industries around the world. Yeah, it's really, I'm just really grateful that you came on to discuss what you're doing, because I, I I think people in our world need to sort of know sort of the connectivity to GIS. And I think think that you all do a great job with that. So I, I have to end it there. But before we do, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. Oh, this episode's Geek of the Week is actually uh, a trio. David Dropty, Will Minkoff, and Andrew Leeper. For the first time ever, we're highlighting three Geeks of the Week because these gentlemen run the well-known Nash, at Nash Severe Weather Twitter account. So make sure you follow them, at Nash Severe WX. Uh, They have helped provide support for the National uh, Weather Service Office in Nashville for more than a decade, communicating life-saving information to their followers. The Nashville tornado in 2020 was their most memorable weather event, and with good reason, as it devastated neighborhoods and killed five people. Thank you all for volunteering your time and for your efforts to keep the community safe and good luck guys. And Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the weather geeks podcast. Yeah. Thanks Dr. Today. So look forward to, to listening in the future for different ones. Thanks. Happy, happy to have you. And yeah, we're out there on all podcast platforms and I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the university of Georgia. And we'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.